When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. 
Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another, not yet not made with hands. Yet even then their testimonies did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself there, she looked at him closely. You, are, you also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I do not know or understand what you are talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans, so they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? asked Pilate knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. 
And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they laid, they led him out to crucify him. People, eh? Humans. We're fairly predictable, aren't we? We let our own interests, our own priorities, take over from doing the right thing. This is the UK Natural Environment Research Council's $200 million new boat. And when they were making it, they sought to engage the public and ask them to come up with a good name for the vessel, hoping probably for the name of some polar explorer or some famous scientist. Instead, the great British public voted for it to be called Boaty McBoatface. Another interest uh, to take the mickey and have a bit of a laugh took over and corrupted the process and the results. Here's another example of other interests taking over. Uh, a man has been fined $1,000 after he was caught eating a kebab on a park bench in Newcastle. The man was fined on Wednesday after he'd allegedly failed to comply with two previous warnings from police to do with social distancing measures. His own interests in enjoying the normal freedoms that we take for granted took over from doing what the authorities said he had to do in the current circumstances. Now, these are minor examples of what happens when we let our own priorities take over. But what about when it comes to justice being done? What about when it comes to doing the right thing? What about when it comes to how we treat people? And what about when it comes to how we treat God? Well, this morning we're gonna see how all of us, even the best of us, end up on the wrong side of justice, end up guilty. And we're going to see how Jesus makes the greatest injustice known to man become the ultimate act of bringing justice. How Jesus makes it that guilt is not the end. So just to get some context of where we are in Mark's gospel, his biography of Jesus. This real man, Jesus, in real time, in real places, has been announcing that with his arrival, the kingdom of God, God's rule, has come near. And he's been telling people to repent, and to turn away from their rebellion against God. And that shows up in our sort of everyday wrongdoing. To turn away from that and believe in him. And Jesus has been doing incredible things, stopping wind and waves, raising the dead, healing the sick, controlling nature. All things that showed that he is the Messiah the promised anointed one who would bring God's rule. And he's been telling people, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow, it, follow me. In other words, give up living for yourself, trusting in things that you do for yourself and follow me, trust in me with your life. But the religious leaders in charge don't like that. And so, as we heard read, they have Jesus arrested and put on trial. 
I mean, Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. He's totally innocent. And yet here he is on trial for his life because his accusers have an agenda that overrides truth and justice and doing the right thing. These trials of Jesus are typical of the injustice of the world, aren't they? I mean, you could doubtless take a snapshot of any point in human history and find examples of people treating each other just like this. The whole process is shonky from beginning to end. But let's just pick out some of the highlights, or lowlights, I suppose. They arrest Jesus on the sly in the Garden of Gethsemane at night, despite the fact that Jesus had been readily available and speaking publicly in the temple for ages, for days. And the trial itself happens at night, again, breaking their own rules. Uh, this is the sort of equivalent of roughing up a suspect in the boiler room in a bad 70s detective show. And what did they have to pin on Jesus to accuse him of? The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. They couldn't even get their lies together, never mind any truth. They've begun with what they wanted to achieve, Jesus' death, and then they've reverse engineered from there. So why do they want him dead? Well, because Jesus claims to be bringing the kingdom of God. He's treading on their patch. He's claiming to have greater authority than they have. And he's claiming to have authority over them and he's condemned their ways. But ultimately, they want him dead because they will not even entertain the idea that Jesus' claims about himself are true. So Mark chapter 14, verse 61. Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? In other words, are you saying you're the one God promised would come and bring God's perfect rule, restoring right relationship with him? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. So not only that, Jesus is saying, he's referring to a prophecy from Daniel 7. He's saying, I am the very son of God. And when the end of time comes, it'll be me who comes to judge you and everyone who ever lived. The judge of the universe, standing accused in some dodgy, nighttime trial kangaroo court accused by the very ones he will come to judge but they're having none of it you've heard his blasphemy what do you think they all condemned him as worthy of death so what about you are you willing to entertain the idea that jesus is who he says he is are you able to loosen your grip on controlling your own life just long enough to consider believing in Jesus? What about Pilate, the Roman governor? <laughs> he knows a stitch up when he sees one and he knows people. And he says to the crowd, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed 
Jesus over to him. No one can even tell Pilate what crime Jesus is supposed to have committed. All they can do is cry out, crucify him. Other interests, other priorities get in Pilate's way too. Verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. A convicted, violent criminal released instead of Jesus. Jesus is the only innocent man in the room, and yet he's condemned to be flogged and crucified. The thing is, Jesus would be the only innocent one in any room in all of history. I mean, we might not throw, throw trials or make fal false accusation, really serious stuff like that. But all of us in our own way fail to love God as we should. We all let other priorities take over our decisions, take over our actions, our relationships. We all act unjustly to promote our own agenda. And it results in us rebelling against God. And the Bible calls this sin. And all of us are guilty of it. And deep down we know those sins have consequences. We know that they make us guilty. So what should God do? Just forgive? This is Adelma Tapia Ruiz. Adelma was at the airport with her three-year-old twin daughters and her husband Christopher. They'd gone to see her off on a trip to New York to meet her sister. And they were hanging around the departure gate, but the girls were getting a bit bored, so they ran off to play. Christopher ran off to play with them. Suddenly, there's a massive noise. Thrown to his feet, Christopher desperately looks around for the girls. One's a little injured, but she's okay. They're both okay. He looks back over to the departure gate. It isn't there anymore. Adelma is not there anymore. And with things like that, we feel them, don't we? I mean, I've stood in Adelaide Airport with my children, waving goodbye to Sharon at a departure gate. This situation just cries out for justice to be done. And if that's how we feel, how does God, who knows every hair on Adelma's head, who created her on purpose, how does he feel? Where is the justice? How will justice be done? What's God going to do to deal with the guilty? A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right 
and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. We left off with the question, how will justice be done? How is God going to punish the guilt that we know must be punished in order for justice to be done? How is God going to deal with all the rot and the hurt that's generated by us putting other interests, other priorities, putting ourselves before God? See, God is perfectly pure, perfectly good. If you can think of anything bad, that's not in God's character. And God is consistent. It's not like us, because we're not, are we? Lots of people are finding that out at the moment as um, their other halves work personality is on show now that they're working from home. Here's some uh, quotes from people who've discovered this. A funny thing about quarantining is hearing your partner in full work mode for the first time. Like, I'm married to a let's circle back to that guy. 
Who knew? And it turns out my husband can actually small talk, just not with anyone we know in non-work life. Or how about, my partner is laid back and chilled about everything, never has much of an opinion or an argument, but apparently at work he's super competent and speaks up and gets things done. It's very disorienting. But God is unchangingly good, all the time. He cannot be true to his nature and be unfair as well. So he can't let guilt go unpunished and remain good. But God's also merciful and full of grace. So how can he let us off the hook whilst also seeing justice be done? Well, let's get back to Jesus. See, none of this shonky trial, none of this being handed over to a cruel death is a surprise to Jesus. In fact, he's been saying to his disciples that this must happen for ages now. And the irony is that as the guards spit at Jesus, as they blindfold him and punch him and mockingly demand a prophecy, they're fulfilling prophecy from scripture and from Jesus. In fact, there are 29 prophecies from the Old Testament are fulfilled in the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. Jesus' suffering and death mean something. So let's have a closer look. Jesus is a mocked king, a crucified king, and a forsaken king. A mocked king, crucified king, and a forsaken king. So firstly, the mocked king. Three times Jesus is mocked as king. The soldiers put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call him, call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. Verse 26. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And then verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. The irony is, Jesus really is God's perfect Messiah. God's perfect king come to rescue his people. And yet God's people have rejected him and handed, over, handed him over to their occupying forces, the Romans, for execution. And the irony is that on the cross, Jesus is dying to save them. As they taunt Jesus, they don't realise the truth of what they're saying. He really can't save himself. I mean, he could save himself. You know, he, he raised the dead. He stopped wind and waves. He physically could save himself. But if he wants to save them, if he wants to save us, he has to stay on the cross. Jesus put it like this back in chapter 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is giving up his life to save them to save us. Jesus takes our place, paying the penalty for 
our guilt. Justice is done by Jesus paying for our guilt with his life. Secondly, Jesus is a crucified king, verses 24 and 25. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. Mark doesn't go into great detail about the crucifixion. He doesn't need to. Crucifixion was like a swear word, swear word in the ancient world. It was universally offensive. To Jews it was a death that meant you were under God's curse if you died that way. In Greco-Roman culture, they believed it meant you would end up wandering the earth as a tortured spirit. At whatever the culture, it was the most horrific death you could suffer, both physically and spiritually. And yet Jesus chose to do this. He chose to do it for those who were mocking him, for those who were putting their own interests above God. And he chose to do it for me and for you. And finally, Jesus is a forsaken king from verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So, you know, on Border Patrol, when they play a minor chord to tell you that someone's really dodgy. Well, in the Bible, darkness is like God playing his minor chord. It means that God's just and fair punishment is falling right there and then. God's wrath, his settled opposition to evil, is falling on Jesus. Jesus cries out, verse 34, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now Jesus isn't asking what's going on, he knows what's happening. He's quoting Psalm 22. Have a read of it later and you'll see the uncanny resemblance to the crucifixion. Now Jesus is God the Son taking on God's wrath upon himself. The punishment for all those who were mocking him. The punishment due those young men who killed that mum in the airport I was telling you about. The punishment due to all of us for rebelling against God. See, the Bible looks ahead to a day of judgment, a day when justice will be done. Everything's out and brought out into the open and everyone who ever lived is judged accordingly, fairly. And justice must be done, the debt must be paid. So on that day of judgment, we'll either experience the just and fair consequences of our guilt, eternal death, or the Bible calls it, hell or we'll face it with confidence that Jesus has taken our guilt and the punishment we deserve on himself for all who turn to Jesus and believe in him the punishment due is brought forward to Jesus cross so at the moment the banks are letting us put off our mortgage debt into the future, aren't they, when hopefully we're all, everyone's back in work. But on the cross, our debt to God in the future is brought forward and suffered by Jesus on the cross already. 
obviously earlier Jesus had talked about drinking the cup of suffering God's wrath. Described it as drinking a cup. But he loves us so much that he's willingly drunk that cup of suffering to the very dregs. So that there's none left to suffer for those who put their faith in him. Jesus' death on the cross worked. It's all done. All paid for. Jesus took the punishment for all the guilt we've ever had or ever will have. And all you have to do to be forgiven of your sins is to repent and believe. Turn away from them and believe in Jesus. Guilt is not the end. Jesus has brought an end to guilt for those who will turn to him and trust in him. We know for sure guilt is not the end because, as we'll see on Sunday, Jesus' death is not the end. So I wonder how do you respond to all this? If you've already thrown your lot in with Jesus, if you're trusting in him to save you, well today is a day to remember that your guilt is already dealt with. To look at how much it costs Jesus to forgive and to honour his sacrifice by accepting that forgiveness. And if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, I wonder, are other priorities, competing interests, keeping you locked into taking your chances that you'll get away with it? Well, I pray that you'll see Jesus for who he is. The Son of God, offering his life up as a ransom for yours, that you'll repent of your sins, and believe in him. And then guilt will not be the end. I've written a prayer that you might like to use to respond to this good news about Jesus. It's no magic words, it's just words to help you express from the heart if, um, if you want to put your trust in Jesus. So I'll put the words up on the screen and if you want to pray it, pray it with me. And if it's your first time praying a prayer like this, We'd love to hear from you. Email us at woodcroft at trinity.church or hit the connect button up at the top there and we'll follow you up, help you to get to know Jesus more. Let's pray. Lord God, I admit that if justice were served right now, I would deserve punishment. I failed to love you as I should and loved other things more than you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me and help me to live for you. Thank you for Jesus taking the punishment for my sins on the cross. I turn away from my unjust way of living and trust in Jesus to satisfy your perfect justice. I submit all my competing priorities and interests to Jesus. I give my life to him. Amen.